going to do. You're going to do things that are in your best interest. Second is consistent behavior. If you have, if I can observe you over a period of time and the types of behavior you have, I know exactly what you're going to do next time because that's repeated behavior. And, and, and the third that is really the key to, I, to, I have to stop you for a second. Sure. I, I'm like sitting here taking notes, you know what I mean, while you're talking. It's and I'm thinking, wait a minute, I'm recording this. You know, I can, always, <laughs> I can listen to this later. Welcome back to the live drop in Mark Valley. My guest is Robin Dreek, He's a senior FBI agent with over 20 years of experience. He's a Naval Academy graduate, former Marine Corps officer. He's the former head of the FBI's counterintelligence behavioral analysis program. His primary mission is to thwart efforts of foreign spies and to recruit American spies. But I'm talking to him because he's the author of a book called The Code of Trust. It posits five principles. Suspend ego, be non-judgmental, honor reason, validate others, and be generous. And they work. Audio debrief is as follows. Begin transmission now. You know, it was it was just like a very kind of clear and profound design of, you know, how to gain people's trust, how to keep it, and kind of how to live your life in some ways. I was I was, I, I was really happy with this book. Well, thanks. I'm glad it had that effect. That's the the real point of it because it's really as I when I give my talks, I, I most often say this first. If I know what is in your best interest that you think is in your best interest and your priorities, I know exactly what you're going to do. You're going to do things that are in your best interest. Right. Second is consistent behavior. If you have, if I can observe you over a period of time and the types of behavior you have, I know exactly what you're going to do next time because that's repeated behavior. Then you empower them with choice. If you build those things into everything you say and do, both in writing and one-on-one, everything you say is about them. Their chemical, their brain chemicals are, are, are firing on this. The dopamine's being released. So I can talk about the, you know, the biology and the genetics behind why that's effective. But also societal norms say this is a good way to be a good human being. And then if you want to bring a spiritual or, or religious thing in there, it's doing the same thing. So everything's coalescing together. It's like, how do you treat? Because like, I always say, you know, most people wake up in the morning in here saying, hey, today I'm going to be a really good person and treat people really well. But somehow during the course of the day, this thing gets in the way. Right. And why is it getting away? Because we get emotionally hijacked, we get stress, anxiety, anger. So we get crazy brain going. And when we get crazy brain, our words are not congruent with what we really want to do. So this is this is this is basically, you know, the funniest thing with me is I, I, I was born sucking at all this stuff majestically. Yeah, I was too. Uh, just to remind everybody of who you are, I'm speaking with Robin Dreek. He's the author of The Code of Trust, an American counterintelligence expert's five rules to lead and succeed. I'm going to just throw in those five rules. Suspend ego, be non-judgmental, validate others, honor reason, and be generous. You know, I, I, one of the things that threw me about this was like, wait a second, these, these rules that are going to help. I, I was reading this because I thought, how do you become a better, how do you become a better FBI agent? How do you become a better counterintelligence agent? How do you, how do you catch bad guys? But you do that by being a better human being. Yeah, you, you do. How, how did you, you were talking about how you kind of came to that. You weren't a perfect, uh, you didn't, you didn't kind of come out understanding all these things. No. Um, I mean, you look at my background, I'm a, you know, I'm a Naval Academy graduate, Marine Corps officer, FBI guy, New York. You know, it's uh, I am the very atypical type A hard charging guy, which really in my world translates to uh, I'm a narcissistic, self-centered ass, um, which, you know, in, in, in when you're young and you're trying to aspire to position and, and title, the way to the way to do that is be successful. And the way you're successful is you tell people what to do. They do. They execute for you. It makes you look good. You get promoted right if they 
they don't do what you say, then you yell louder, poke them in the eye and kick them in the ass and they do it a little bit more for you. And then and then you have those results because they have a cause and effect. And we get rewarded at a young lot. Not everyone, but some of us get rewarded at a young age for being that kind of bully boss. God, I remember that when I was because uh, I went to I went to West Point. Ah, beat, beat Navy, and uh, since I'm winning this year, <laughs> thank you. Too. I didn't want to. That's another reason I wanted to interview you. What's it like to lose two times in a row? I well, mean, I knew, I knew when I yeah. I lose. I lost every year that I was there. So oh, you I, did. I, oh, we didn't. That I, I was there during the days of Kenny and the Matololo, our 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 chief uh, of, yeah. of all great football. And so when I was there, we just were professional losers. Uh, we had a chant in the stands that said, do a dive, do a dive, do a dive, punt. Right. <laughs> and so, yeah. so um, being part of this is fun. Matter of fact, my son uh, heads off to the Naval Academy on June 28th. He's a class of 2022. Oh, congratulations. And, uh, I know, yeah, I know. We're very excited. I remember now, we did, I remember we did an exchange with the Naval Academy. I did a week there and they said that the purpose of that was an understanding, you know, of the, of the two different service academies, I guess. You could probably speak to that better. I think the real reason was for the Naval Academy because I appreciate that they were at the Naval Academy. That's what they, that's what they, that's <laughs> I agree. So I, I grew up not too far from West Point in Carmel, New York, in Putnam County. And so I did a lot of events. Wait, Carmel, my Carmel, New York. Is that near? Where is that near? It's Putnam County. So you go across the Newburgh Beacon Bridge on the other side, uh, on the New York, still on that New York side. On the way to Connecticut, right off of I-84. So I was probably about 40 minutes from West Point, where so, I grew up. What, east or west side of the Hudson? Like Beacon or? East. So it's on the Beacon side, yes. Oh, the Beacon side. Okay. I, I, grew, up, I grew up in St. Lawrence County, up near oh, Sar- okay. Syracuse. Yeah, my, and my mom grew up in Beacon, New York, so right there. Okay. So, yeah, so I know. I know how much it's... And also, when I was an uh, FBI agent in New York City, I lived in Rockland County, just south of uh, West Point. Okay. So, so do you know um, James Gagliano, by any chance? Uh, I do know him, yeah. You know, I'm not, he's, oh, he's a classmate of mine. Oh, okay. So what year were you? 87. Oh, okay. Yeah, well, you're a little older. That's when I graduated high school. <laughs> yeah, I was older. <laughs> uh, yeah, I definitely have more gray hair in my beard. No, no, no pretty good, isn't it? <laughs> not bad. Not bad. Um, so, so, yeah, getting back to where it all came from, it came from, you know, that... And, and the military kind of pounds into a certain mentality at a young age. And I got better at it in the Marine Corps. You know, I was ranked last out of all my second lieutenants on my first uh, evals. And I remember going up to the major and asking him, all right, so what am I doing wrong? And he just said, you need to be a better leader. And I was like, what the hell does that mean? But when I came in the FBI, what happens when you work counterintelligence, you generally don't work against criminals. So there's really no reason why anyone does have to talk to you. You know, you know, intelligence officers from foreign nations 99% of the time, they're not doing anything illegal. And and also, here's another challenge, too. It's it's also illegal for me to talk to them because we have rules with State Department and everything else. So if my job was to recruit spies and it's illegal for me to talk to the spies, and if I can't recruit them, I have to talk to the people they're talking to. And the people they're talking to aren't breaking laws either. They're just sourcing information so they can actually qualify to make an intelligence. Why should anyone ever want to have a conversation with me? And I was so was that a new? Was that kind of a new experience? I mean, the FBI had this mm-hmm. image of they wa- kind of wanted this image of being un- the untouchables. It's it's a different world, you know. I, I've never worked criminal work. I've only worked mm-hmm. in counterintelligence, and it is a very very different world because the the people we we'll, we deal with generally, unless you're working espionage, and I haven't. When I ran our behavioral team, I did a lot of espionage co- consultations, but personally, I haven't worked a lot of espionage cases. Um, which is the criminal side of, of counterintelligence. So most of us, what we're trying to do is we're trying to protect our, our, our national security 
from people that don't have our best interest at heart, you know, trying to get trade secrets, proprietary information from our clear defense contractors, you know, it's all that kind of stuff that we're trying to really partner with industry to protect them, you know, from uh, from being basically robbed blind and all their good research and money and effort goes to nothing. And again, most of the time, it's not a lot of criminal work going on. It's a lot of positive intelligence that's being collected. And the people that have this and the people that have the most knowledge, there there's no reason they have to talk to you. You know, so how do you so it really came down to the luck of the draw that I, I got really been, I was really benefited on the squad I was at in New York that there is a lot of Jedi Masters on the squad that have been doing this for 20, 25 years. Mm-hmm. And they had it down. I mean, and so and you're talking was, collecting information, talking to be getting people to talk to them. Develop relationships. It was really, you know, the, you know, in, in the book, he's uh, Terrence Boney is his name in the book, but his real name is John. And uh, he's he, he's my mentor and guide. This guy. And it's, it's funny to uh, give you bonus. Uh, he's also a West Point grad. <laughs> but oh, yeah. he was. But you know what? The, what I really had the opportunity to, when I went to Quantico and started teaching and writing and when I took over our team, really analyzing what's going on here. Why was he so successful? Because this was probably the most successful counterintelligence agent I've ever known and never heard of. And he's still he alive. Wrote, he's still yeah, alive. Oh, yeah. He's, he's actually a neighbor. Uh, he, he retired and moved down uh, near me in Virginia. Okay. And he ha- he has a secret of life, which is humility. He was very humble, constantly was humble. There was no I love me plaques. Matter of fact, I only discovered, you know, how he won the director's award. Uh, we're, we're over at his house one time and my kids are playing with his kids downstairs and they're using the director's award as a hockey puck because it's like <laughs> this, this last puck. Right. And right. I, I remember saying to my son, where the hell did you get that? And he goes, oh, it's in that shoebox over there. You know, so here you you know, right. highest award in the FBI, you know, for these investigations and things he's done, and it was in a shoebox in a corner. So, what were his values? I mean, what were the things that he he that, knew how to make it about everyone else? Right. You know, he he never he never did anything for himself. He always uh, talked in t- terms of everyone else's priorities. He sought their thoughts and opinions. He never he never debated them. He never challenged their context of how they saw the world. He asked what I call discovery questions. And he just never thought himself superior to anyone. And so that's what we're all seeking as human beings. We're all seeking to be valued. And he knew how to value people um, very, very well. Um, And it didn't matter. You know, what I learned from him and from doing this is nationality doesn't even matter because I've probably worked 22 different nationalities through the course of my career. I'm not a specialist in anything. You know, I've worked Russia most of it. But because you can't be. I mean, you can't, you know, I, I, my comeback, I love to, if anyone asks me, so Robin, you're a Russian expert. I always just say, I don't know, are you an American expert? Right. Right. <laughs> you know, it's such a hodgepodge. It's so individual. I'm an Irish so, expert. Yeah. And, yeah. So when you can let go of, of what you're trying to impose on someone and just try to understand them and that's what people are seeking. And so I, I came up with this methodology or where I'm just trying to understand what was John doing? What are the greats doing? What are the, you know, when you meet someone that they say is charismatic or is a great listener or a great leader, uh, an inspiring person, um, that's a feeling and emotions, very subjective. But I really break it down to figure out exactly what you're doing because I want to be that person. And it, and yeah, you can learn it on the job training and you can mimic behaviors, but, and, and you might get, I got better at it because you either get better at it or you lose your job. Right. But I really was placed in positions where when someone asks you to teach it or share it, 
you have to break it down. You have to make that art form this paint by number. And I was been I was I was able to do that. And I think you know that's what the code of trust came from. It came mm-hmm. from trying to figure out what, how the great people became great. It's fascinating. I started thinking. I want to. Make, I want to. There's one other thing I wanted to go into. Like when you, when you're speaking, when you're talking. There's another thing about your book. Really struck me as I was reading it. Is I was constantly thinking of, and this is, and this probably has something to do with your voice coming through in your writing as well. It's just. I was constantly thinking of stories that I wanted to tell that your book had had reminded me of, right? Awesome. I and mean, that's more or less the idea. The, that's more or less the goal of a counterintel. You're talking to someone and you're inspiring them to tell you stories. You're inspiring them to share with you. I, I, yeah. I just, I don't really know how you did it, but that was pretty effective. I'm like writing uh, down like, oh, I can't wait to tell them about this. And I'm thinking, well, I got one hour to talk. Who? <laughs> I don't want to awesome. hear myself talk, you know? Well, what we just did was, you know, the the key of, of mankind is is you identify commonalities. I mean, all every time another human being gets together with another human being, ultimately what we're trying to do is we're trying to build affiliation and we're testing where we can build that affiliation. Um, and so when I when I speak and talk with anyone, especially when you're dealing with people that have committed espionage or have done other heinous acts, you know, that are against humankind, you have to build uh, some sort of commonality. And I have found um, you can do it with any human being, you know, regardless of you don't have to agree with them, but you can find a way to understand them mm-hmm. and why they've done the things they have. And that can be very challenging with some people. Have you ever and had to have you ever had to um, I have a friend named Todd Keck. He's an FBI agent, but he, I was playing an FBI. Yeah, I should just clarify this. Just, just give my own bona fides. I have played an FBI agent several times. <laughs> I am not one, but I played one on TV at least four times. So probably much better than me as well. I guarantee. <laughs> I don't know. I had a good suit. I was in this movie, The Siege. Actually, I don't know if you saw that, but it was with Denzel Washington. It was before 9/11. Yeah. Where they? Yeah. Yeah. I, I was one of the guys that got killed in the federal building. So. Oh wow! Look at you. Yeah. 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 I guess. <laughs> Yeah, but what, is it, what I was going to say was a friend of mine. I I remember calling some of the, some of my classmates who were in the FBI at the time. One of them was Todd Todd Keck, and he's he works in the Midwest, but he did a lot of um, in, interrogations. And he said one of the things that he had to do was was pretend act like he understood someone, or if not really understand them, then pretend that he understood, or at least try to understood to create sure. a scenario. I mean, if he has you know someone who's you know suspected of murdering several people, you know, or um, you know, or something, something like that. He would, he would say, ah, you know, people, they drive you crazy. You know, <laughs> he would try to find that one right. little commonality instead of, right. you know, slamming the phone book down on top of them. But I guess my that, question was, do you ever fake it? No. Fake, I, un- I, fake understanding someone? Used to, I think mm-hmm. probably that to start. Um, but every time I'm done doing something, I always do an after action, you know, and I always right. ask myself, what could I have done better? What, and, and one of the things that I learned from my team, one of the things we always asked ourselves and, and made sure that our mindset was right when we did a consultation for a case agent was we always made sure that they understood that it's a good thing that they were there, the ones talking to the person they needed to talk to. You know, mm-hmm. I don't even as you hear, I even avoid words like subject or targets because that dehumanizes someone. I'm not saying these are deal breakers, but people pick up on this. And so it's always about genuineness and sincerity. In other words, I will find what we have in common. One of my favorite questions I ask anyone is, so tell me about a favorite family holiday or tradition you had growing up. Right. Everyone's got one. You know, and it, and if you have a favorite one and I have a favorite one, we now have a commonality that we have something from our childhood we remember remember fondly. That's And it's got to be real. Uh, it, right. Okay, it doesn't have to be real. If you want to up your game, 
so that you're actually being genuine and sincere because people people pick up on a bad, crappy salesman very rapidly. All right. And what this is, I call it congruence. If you have incongruence between that what you're saying and that what you're feeling, people are going to pick up on this because your nonverbals are going to be incongruent with the words you're saying because they're going to see you're actually there for yourself and not for them, even though the words are proper. That's why if you ever encounter a, a salesman, whether it's cars or appliances or something like that, that just gives you the creeps and you have a hard time figuring out what it is, well, it's because they're there for their own needs. Mm-hmm. And so I just make sure that every time I'm in inter- interacting with anyone i'm i'm a i am just doing one of these three things actually i'm always doing all these three things my goals are very simple always healthy professional relationships healthy is number one number two in order to have healthy professional relationships i gotta have to have open honest communication and transparency and finally i'm an available resource for their prosperity with no expectation of reciprocity so i ask cops this all the time you know it's how i generally start to get them to understand what we're going to do is i said i always say you know like how many of you have ever gotten a confession all the hands go up. I said, great. Right. So why do they, and I said, so why do they confess to you, even though it might not have been in their best interest? And they all, because it's an art form, and I love to give it the labels and meanings for them so they can repeat the behaviors. I call it the, the new car effect. You know, I bought my Toyota Tundra, poof, I see Tundras everywhere mm-hmm. um, because I have labels and meanings. I said, so I said, let me help you out. Is it because you sat across that table and judged them, or did you seek to understand them? So understand the choices they make. And then also, did you start to learn about their priorities, the things that are important to them? And then did you become a resource for them achieving them? They don't want their family to know what happened. They don't want they want to get a lighter sentencing. Whatever it is, as limited as those options might be, you place yourself as the as the person that could be a resource for them achieving those things. Mm-hmm. Am I correct? They, go, they all nod ahead, yes. I said, see? So why are you doing it any differently with anyone else in your life? Because what you just did was you demonstrated that you were seeking their thoughts and opinions. You're looking for a healthy professional relationship. You're a resource for their prosperity. And you didn't have anything in the expectation of reciprocity. It was really all up to them. Mm-hmm. So when you honor these things, I'm telling you, that's what spikes through the, the roof. I mean, I always – here's another analogy I love too is I said think about the healthiest, greatest relationships in your life. Probably main two, three, four tops, ones mm-hmm. that are that are – totally on your side. I said, how many times during those conversations or dialogues with these people do you actually do one of these four things? Seek their thoughts and opinions. Don't judge what they're saying. Talk in terms of what's important to them and empower them with choice. Probably 5% of the time. Tops. And these are your best relationships. Can you imagine the power of the trust and relationships you'll have if you do it 100% of the time? Right. And that's what it really, it comes down to that. Um, it's really, it's amazing how simple it is. It's funny. I spoke with, uh, I spoke with, uh, homicide detectives. There's this book called ghetto side by Jill Levy. It talked about the, um, South Bureau and I was writing something about a, about a policeman at the time. And, um, and I asked him, I said, why, why do people confess? I, I, there was, there was some, I mean, in this book, he'd said that there were some people who'd said, I mean, some had claimed that people confessed because there was this guilt. There was this, this guilt that was building up and they wanted to relieve that but he said no i don't really believe in that i i I really felt that um for some reason people wanted to wanted to help me they wanted to they wanted to contribute they felt that there was uh that there's a natural inclination of of people to want to kind of solve a like two people are sitting in a room you want to solve something together whether you know so, so, so there's one thing I, I refer to as an assistance theme. 
Right. If you don't know a priority of the individual you're talking to or engaging with because it's purely in, in a relationship, you create one. Thing, one thing you can pretty much rely on is, is is an assistance team because ancient tribal man, you know, back when we were tribes of 30, 40, or 50, you know, if you weren't able and willing to help out someone else, the likelihood of you being helped if you became sick, lame, or injured was slim to, slim to none, and your genetic coding would not be passed along and you'd die. So we're genetically coded to give uh, assistance and help and be part of collectives. I also think part of part of his reasoning, what he's looking at, you know, when solving these homicides and why people wanted to talk and confess, because people are looking for understanding. Right. Everyone has a reason for doing what they're doing. And that's why people do confess when talking to law enforcement, because for the first time, they're actually having someone to sit across the table for them, not judging what they did, but trying to understand what they did and why they did it. Mm-hmm. Everyone else in their lives is judging them as right or wrong. Right. I mean, in like South it, LA, they were saying the reason why, and this this book kind of put it out, and he understood it pretty clearly. He said the reason why there are there were so many you know homicides comparatively in some areas was because there was a lack of trust of the police themselves. I mean, it's similar to right. you know, Sicily or Italy or something like that, where the rise you had a rise of a mafia. It wasn't because they were angry or they didn't respect the law. It's it's because they didn't trust the law it hadn't really demonstrated that it was going to be um just for them so they felt they had to take it into their own into their own hands you know whether it be punishment or retribution yeah, or shooting absolutely. someone yeah, yeah and, and trust is really simple uh, i base trust on, on trust isn't black or white it's can i trust you to do this or this or this so it's very individualistic and it's very case specific but here's what uh, it's very easy to assess and predict what people are going to do. First, if I know what is in your best interest that you think is in your best interest and your priorities, I know exactly what you're going to do. You're going to do things that are in your best interest. Right. Second is consistent behavior. If you have, if I can observe you over a period of time and the types of behavior you have, I know exactly what you're going to do next time because that's repeated behavior. And, and and the third that is really the key to, I, to, I have to stop you for a second. Sure. I, I'm like sitting here taking notes, you know what I mean, while you're talking See, and I'm thinking, wait a minute, I'm recording this. You know, I can always <laughs> I can listen to this later. Anyway, go go ahead. <laughs> and the and the third thing after, you know, this uh, consistent behavior is transparency. Right. You know, in our own organization right now, you know, the government right now, you know, when when you have someone that has a perception of having lost trust because of and – what, and how do you lose trust? Someone deviated from, from predictable behavior, and so that loses trust. And the only way to regain trust is through transparency in the areas that they say you need to have transparent. And when people become defensive about transparency, trust is gone completely. Yeah, that is a pretty interesting situation we have right now. Yep. Right. I mean, what what are the examples of deviating from expectations? I mean, I, are you saying people from the FBI have deviated from expectations, or or it's oh. just they're just created the image? Or so we, we, I mean, so we can. And again, I'm talking for myself, mm-hmm. <laughs> not on behalf of any organization on the FBI, but sure. you know, so let's just so what we can do is we can analyze what's been put in the media. Um, Director Comey, you know, back in the July statement where he did not refer. Hillary Clinton over to the Department of Justice, he made his own decision on that. He deviated with the pattern behavior that directors in the FBI doesn't come to that conclusion. It goes to DOJ. And so that was a deviation from behavior. And so when you have a deviation from behavior, it raises questions. And when people raise questions, they're trying to understand why was there a deviation from behavior? In order to justify and show that we still have trust, you need full transparency in those areas that people have questions in. And if there isn't full transparency, then it starts spiraling down. And, and again, it doesn't even matter what truth is. 
with most people it's just it's perception perception rules and 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 when you have media on both sides whether it's left wing right wing media their whole job is to sell ad space and so they're going to spin things so they sell ad space and so I, I haven't seen one thing yet that's accurate but it seems like one side appears to be it seems like trump supporters it seems like they they enjoy the deviation from expectations in what areas and that he might not act the way a president we expect a president to act. <laughs> Actually, I said this yesterday at a briefing I gave on uh, on Insider Threat. Believe it or not, you know, if you if if you can, if people see this is the thing I love about the code of trust too. It makes you right. honor reason, which is about yeah. maintaining objectivity. So, right. you, which means you don't get emotionally hijacked and about situations. You think cognitively about cause and effect. The so Trump has deviated from a norm of what's expected for presidents to act, but the one thing that he is is exceptionally predictable, you know. And and so the class kind of gave me a puzzled look. I said, "All right, tell me this: if he says he's going to do something, do you think he's going to do it?" Everyone nods their head. Yep, he's going to do it. I said, "All right, so that's predictable." Right. If someone pokes him in the eye, do you think he's going to poke him back and and tweet about it? Yep, they nod with their head. I said, "All right, so what we now have is extreme, exceptionally predictable behavior." <laughs> oh, and that's reinforcing it. That's reinforcing his support. Right. Right. Exactly. Because you know, because what is he? He's given massive appearance of transparency. Because he, yeah, he's that. I mean, that is an open book. I mean, that is completely under. Granted. You know, I, I know you have a lot, a lot of psychs and everything doing, you know, third party assessments of him, you know, you know, X, Y and Z or this psychosis or or is, you know, psychotic or, or sociopathic or whatever. But I'll tell you what he is. He's predictable. Mm-hmm. Very predictable. I heard something heard the news once. I, uh, I think it was Bill Riley a couple of years ago was interviewing one of the old news anchors. I forget. I forget who it was. And they said, how would you interview Donald Trump? And he said, well, first of all, we should. I need to blame you for getting us in this situation, for bringing entertainment into politics in the first place, and that this wouldn't be a real interview, it would be a show. But my question is, would you, I'll remember his name later, and it wasn't a good impersonation, but my question is, how would you, how would you, if if someone like Donald Trump, you, you did want to get information from him, you know, using using the five rules, how how would you establish trust with someone like him? I think it's really easy. Just like, I mean, and there's no difference between him or really anyone else. Right. Um, I I think he's actually pretty easy because you know what his. Granted, there, everyone can have a surprise that you're unaware of that you're not you know that isn't transparent you know sure. so it's priorities. In other words, so the only thing the only way to make the connection where people are going to want to share with you is if you seek their thoughts and opinions in areas of their priorities, and if their priorities overlap with yours, that's what they're going to share. His priorities are really easy. He stated his priorities, and the fact that he takes action on his priorities—that's what you talk about. I mean, you want to you want him to share information, talk about what's important to him. Mm-hmm. It's <laughs> the harder to deal with him, you know, is pretty simple. He knows what he wants. He figures out what you want, and he figures out a way to make it both work. I got. I have a feeling he read your book. <laughs> I mean, you think about it, you think about it. He, I mean, with his with his base and his support, I mean, he really has, you know, he really applies to their their situations and their fears, and yeah, he he gives the appearance that he has an understanding of of his base. Yeah, and 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 that's and, and you hit that key word in there too, an appearance, you know, and that's why I think people are you know get a, a lot of anger and, and emotion going because. Well, he didn't suspend he ego. He, did, he didn't suspend ego. I think he skipped number one, but then he might have gone to, to the other ones. Yeah. 
but you said to give the appearance of it. Yeah, well, and, and, and here's where trust can be lost. If the appearance is not congruent with the actual action, then it's just nothing but a show. Right. And so, you know, so people generally do give trust until trust is broken. And trust is basically is your appearance that you're protecting actually congruent with the actions you're taking. Mm-hmm. Therein lies the, the, the challenge inside of government, you know, and with anything political or in, or in corporations or anything else. If the company says, you know, hey, we're a big family organization, yet every action they take is, is to is to hammer you, then. Well, they're incongruent and you really can't trust them. But if they actually are taking actions that are in benefit of the employees and they say they're about family and they're about taking care of their employees, well, then it's congruent. And, you know, we have companies around us. Wegmans is a food store, a food chain. I, I hear nothing but great things about them because they take care of their employees because they know if they take care of their employees, employees take care of the customers. You let's know, talk, so let's talk about that incongruence for a bit. I, I want to throw one other thing in. I took a this reminded me of a Stephen Book is an acting teacher that I studied with for a couple of years. He wrote a book called actor takes a meeting, right? It was interesting at the time because uh, back in the 80s or, you know, to 90s, everyone would just say, just be yourself, just be yourself. Like when you're going to meet someone, the objective of an actor when you're going to meet someone is you want to give an audition first and you want to have as much congruence as possible. You want your lines as you're playing this character to sound real, to, to mm-hmm. you know, make it really the character. But there's also the part of the meeting where you're just speaking with someone, you're just talking with them, they're getting to know you. And he said the objective isn't for them to remember you, right? I mean, obviously, you want them to remember you. He said the objective is for them to remember the experience that they had with you. Yeah, and that reminded you, me, it reminded me of you when you said you. It's more like what they feel. Right. right. It's it's. If you want to be remembered, uh, you want to be the person that makes them feel great about who they are. Mm-hmm. And they'll remember who made them feel great about who they are. Yeah, he made a list of things. I think you might find this kind of interesting. Because you also mentioned your interview with Pete, you, or early on in the, your book, you mentioned um, something about things you can say or things you can do when you're initially establishing contact with someone, mm-hmm. which you know, essentially pick up lines. <laughs> <laughs> you said you know, ways to kind of meet people or kind of break the ice. I want to get into that as well, but one, here's a couple of things he said. Um, don't be a victim. Be the host. Interview the interviewer. Don't want anything. Create an experience. Uh, keep the interviewer from looking at your resume. I think that just means keep them engaged. Avoid dis- avoid discussing your credits. Avoid laughing at anything that's not funny. Avoid unnecessary apologies. Avoid bad-mouthing anyone. If conversation lulls, tell another truth. And here's what the truth was that he mentioned. He said, you don't have to say... Uh, you, you could mention something that you both... What, what a truth was is he said, it's something that two people share... In, a, in, a, in that immediate space that is undeniable. Like, and it might even sound just kind of strangely in a propos or, you know, like a non sequitur. Like, you've got a, you've got a white ceiling fan, <laughs> right? And, like, you're, you respond and you laugh because it's like, oh, my God, that is, that is true. It's irrefutable. Right. We both share it. I can't deny it. And he, and he sees it. I call it a third party reference. I think that's what, uh, that's where I probably was talking to Pete about, you know, when you're, in other words, when you're, you know, seeking thoughts and opinions of someone in your first meeting, you don't want to ask too many probing questions about them because then you're being too, you know, in your face. And then if you want to talk about yourself because no one cares, 
And so you seek thoughts and opinions about third-party references, things in your environment that you that are neutral. And when you're seeking those thoughts and opinions or making comments, you're establishing commonality and you're establishing that you view them as having cognizant thoughts and opinions. So you're demonstrating value because you're actually asking their thoughts and opinions about it. I think an example of that would be something would be why people talk about the weather. Mm-hmm. It's safe. It's safe. It's something you both share. It's something that's both. Yep. Both there. And and but now what what will happen is is now someone's will and so here's what can become challenging though uh, with any situation like that and this is where being non-judgmental and validating people is really key and critical because someone could love hot humid days and someone could hate hot humid days. Right. And if and if one person says oh I love the weather we're having and the other person says well this weather sucks because I can't stand these hot humid days. Well, then now you have this arguing of context that comes in there and now shields and barriers up as opposed to asking, oh, wow, really? Um, so you love hot, humid days. What kind of experiences in your life makes you love hot, humid days? Because that, that's pretty unusual. You know, and so so now you're seeking those thoughts and opinions congruence. You're smiling and, and seeking you know, to understand them. So it's congruent with your, what you're feeling and what you're saying. And now they're really expanding on who they are. And you validate it non-judgmentally, and now you understand their context. And once you understand their context, you start understanding the things that are important to them. It just gives you everything. The greatest open-ended question I love to always ask is the challenge. I call it the challenges question. You know, so what kind of challenges did you have growing up in hot, humid days? What, you know, right. that'll when you ask someone about what kind of challenges they're having in any sorts of situation, they're going to share their priorities. They're going to share the things in their life that are important, and now. Now you're starting to – now what your brain is doing if you're making it about them is automatically categorizing what kind of resources do I have that can I align and make available for their challenges. Right. And so that's – and that's how trust and that's how these relationships are built. I think there's a tr- it's a transition from you know, talking about some third party third – party, third party? What did you call it? Third a third party. Yep, th- third party reference. It's, it's the it, – it's – I think there's, there's a – let me just give a little context here. I mean, this show is called The Live Drop. I just interview people from the intelligence community, counterintelligence, um, and the actors who play them as well. Um, I think sure. there's sort of a similarity there. We're, we're having a discussion about, 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 about your book, The Code of Trust, and you know, we're talking about how to get someone to trust you to, to, you know, to kind of foment an exchange of information. But one thing I think is kind of fascinating is that moment where you go to asking that question, what kind of challenges have you had? Because that would sound like, it doesn't sound like a normal conversation. It sounds like somebody's, I mean, initially that would throw a light off in my head. It, you know, it would. It's actually a question I haven't had to ask all that often because right. that is, that's the end of the road. I have nothing more to talk about. I don't know what to say question. Um, a lot <laughs> well, of people, that comes out a little yeah, pause, but it very rarely does because normally, you know, you're, you're constantly searching for those commonalities. And if you're open to identifying commonalities, you're, you'll within seconds have things to talk about. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, you and I, you know, I mean, just so, yeah, we planned on having a conversation. I had no idea, you know, commonalities you might have. And within the first couple seconds, you're a West Point grad, graduated in 87, you're, on the east, on the west coast, I'm on east coast. I've been there, but you know, so these are all the things that are going through my head for commonality and background that are because I was open to and looking for affiliation. Right. And so right. if if the if the main interviewer is the one that is open to and looking for affiliation, and has a wide breadth of of open mindedness about where you're going to find it, you'll find it. And mm-hmm. and generally, and this is what we did. Generally, you'll find it in the wayback in what I call the wayback button. 
the younger you get in life, you'll find you have a lot more commonalities. All right. So if we didn't even have West Point and the Naval Academy, all right, we both went to college. Well, if, right. we, if we didn't have that, we, well, we both went to high school. Both grew up. <laughs> we had experiences with our parents uh, or we experienced with caregivers. We had experiences, you know, we're generationally, we're probably really close. And so we're both Gen Xers. And so that means that we either or other people, you know, we we were latchkey kids. We came home after you know, on third grade. We raided refrigerators, drank from fire hoses and shot BB guns at each other. <laughs> yeah. You know, we were around when microwaves were invented and VCRs and beta Betamax came out. You know, so so we're able to find commonality through the Wayback button sometimes. And then so I'll start there if I need to. I'll start up here. So that's where that kind of flexibility with where you're going to find it. And if people want to find it, you will find it. I, I, I There has not been an instance yet in my life that I haven't, whether it's been work or personal, that you ha- I haven't found a commonality. So I have to share this one story, though. I, I was I, I went to. I'd been like uh, I was on a soap opera once. I played this character, Jack Devereaux, was trying to get his wife back, her her new husband. Bear Good with name. Me. Bear with me here. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he, he he you know the new husband wouldn't let him see his kid. It was a big struggle. Anyway, I just did it for years, and I thought, oh god, I'm doing this ridiculous soap opera. I want to do some, I want to do some work like the siege. I, you know, you know this movie. I want right. to play FBI agents. I want to play. I, I want to like tell stories about things that matter that have to do with current events and so forth and so on anyway but i i, I worked for a while and did a, a nighttime television series kind of forgotten about this soap opera and i wanted to go to tanzania a friend of mine was working there uh, he's british and he was working there at their embassy but so i i went there and got out of the i went at the airport i get into a taxi from dar salaam and you know the, ta- the airport roads are always these shanty roads where there's people cooking right. in the streets and naked kids running around so we're driving through this you know and motorcycles are whizzing by and this guy, and he's like really, hasn't said a word the whole time. And he's and he mumbles out as we're driving for about 15 minutes. He goes, you look like Mr. Jackie. I was like, excuse me? He goes, you look like Jack Devereaux. And I said, well, um, I am. wow, <laughs> that's that's a pretty good memory. I, I, I left that show 10, 10 years ago. And he said, no, no, you're on the TV today. So we're, we're driving along a little bit. And then he says to me, he doesn't say anything for a while. And he said, Mr. Jackie, he insisted on calling him Mr. Jackie. He said, you, you, you understand me. I'm like, excuse me? He said, I have a wife and she, I have a baby and she is with another man. And this man will not let me see my baby. And you, Mr. Jackie, you understand me. And I thought, wow, that was, that was a moment where, um, I really felt, it's probably one of my most fulfilling moments as an actor, but as you say, you know, seek understanding with someone. Here was someone who thought through through a character that I played that I, and in a, in a, in a way, I'd been playing that character for three years and that had been his life. Sure. So we did establish a pretty quick understanding. So it can come from some strange areas. I mean, you talk the way back yeah. button, but I didn't think it would, anybody would would have understanding from what I did on a soap opera. Did you yeah. see how I did that? I, I included yeah. you, I included your principles from your book and a little bit about my own career. Functionality. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. People want to talk about themselves sometimes, we all don't see, they? We're all I just wanted I just wanted a quick dopamine hit from, from talking about myself for a while. Um, <laughs> see, it's per- it's perfect. See, it's more validating because you're quoting dopamine. Yep. <laughs> it it works. Yeah. Um, yeah. This is uh this, this is a pretty fascinating conversation. I, I um. I feel like I could talk to you about a lot of different things. You say you, say you train, um, like you, you basically started training 
you know, new the FBI can they call themselves officers or agents like FBI agents? agents. They're agents. Right, CIA is different there. Okay, but right. I guess yep. so. You were teaching motives and methods of foreign spies to FBI agents. Was this be this is before you put the book together? Before you kind of codified the rules of trust, or what was kind of the gist of what you were teaching them? Uh, um, kind of all at the same time. It's been an evolution, is the best way to put it. You know, you you know, it's you know, when, when communicating and developing relationships and, and leadership, because it all comes down to leadership for me is uh it's a it's a journey not a destination so what had happened was when i was at i went from new york to the norfolk office to fbi headquarters i was in the russia unit up there I, being tied to a desk i started realizing that i don't like being tied to a desk and so i i, I needed a creative outlet and i had a friend of mine that encouraged me to start writing and and right. uh, write an article about source recruitment and so what and that was the first time i was kind of forced to codify what i'd learned from my jedi masters and as soon and I, then I, I had the benefit of being asked to come down to Quantico and teach a bit. And when I first started doing this, it was all about, you know, my, my first book is all about, you know, 10 tips to quick rapport. You know, how do you elicit information? How do you do X, Y and Z? How do you interview is, is, is much more uh, procedural and, you know, the, just the facts, ma'am kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. But when I, I I'm very I, I hyper analyze everything um, behavioral because I sucked at it so bad what started happening was i started really thinking about and analyzing well why did that work why was i able to get that information and what the truth started coming out especially when i wrote my last article before i wrote the code of trust was about my behavioral team and someone they asked me the editor of law enforcement bulletin wanted me to do an article on counterintelligence and i was like oh what could i do and it's like oh let me write about my team and i never really thought about how we did what we did. I just thought it was some magical mojo we did for a case agent at the end of the day after talking to a case agent, we'd offer them these great ideas. And what I really realized when I did that and kind of sat down and said, what am I doing when I'm doing these things in my own life and my own investigations and for the team, I realized that's when the light bulb went off. I, all I was ever doing my entire life was strategizing trust. If you want to elicit right. information for someone, you're actually, and, and, and there's great books on elicitation. The Interrogator by Hans Hans Sharp from World War II is fantastic. Uh, Confidential by John Nolan. And each of the principles behind elicitation or interviewing really comes down to what behaviors are you going to do to inspire trust? And so I, I started really focusing on the fact that every time I'm strategizing, I'm strategizing trust. And the better you're at at trust, the easier everything else is. And trust begets relationships, and the healthier the relationship is, the easier everything else becomes. And you stop having to do games. I like I refuse to play with human beings anymore. You know, I, I refuse to practice solicitation or anything because I just don't. You don't need to, because my ultimate goal always with with everyone is a good, healthy, honest relationship. If I need something, if I need to ask you something, I'll tell you what I, I need, and I'll tell you why I need it. You either want to share it with me or you don't. If you don't, I'm fine. I'm good. I'll move on. You know, I just. Because if I leave you feeling and wondering what I really wanted from this dialogue and conversation, I completely failed. I don't want you to ever second guess that because, again, my, my whole my whole goals and motives are my ends goals. I don't think a means and, you know, you have the means to the ends and, and the means goals in life can be very specific, a promotion, an interview, a recruitment. Um, all these little things are means goals, but it's really serving the end. In the end, you're trying to protect national security. And these other big, broader things. And so I found when I serve my end goals first, 
which are healthy, happy, professional relationships, open, honest communication, and transparency, and to make myself an available resource for your prosperity with no expectation of reciprocity. When I honor those three ends goals, all means goals will fall into place. I don't even have to think about it. I don't have to try because when you honor relationships, everything works. I've witnessed this so much in my everyday life. And, and you know, my son, who we talked about before, you know, he got in the Naval Academy. He got it because, yeah, he's got the genetics and he's got biology and talent, but also because we honored relationships the entire time. We, we, we built relationships with people so we can make their job easier. Say yes, <laughs> you know, right. and with, with, and I'm also I'm completely anti-manipulation. I define manipulation as very simply as an attempt of control with use of subterfuge and deception and lack of transparency. I refuse, I refuse, I refuse to, to ever try manipulation. Um, that's because my third anchor, as I said, I'm available resource for your prosperity with no expectation of reciprocity. I don't do anything for you with an expectation you're going to do anything for me because that's what leadership is. Leaders are about everyone else. Leaders are about being a resource for the success of everyone they touch. This isn't about leadership about having title and position. This is about leadership about a resource for prosperity. And you don't, I don't judge what they deem as prosperous. I don't judge what their goals and objectives are. I just want to be there for them for it. If, and if they want to reciprocate because I've sensitized them towards the things that are my priorities, great. If not, great. It doesn't matter right. because honoring healthy relationships. You can be the – I've said this so much recently – uh, and, and this is so true. You could be the greatest rocket scientist, mathematician, or physicist on the face of the planet, but you're a complete moron because it's useless without relationships, without someone to share that with, without someone to want to listen to you, without someone to, to take these ideas and move them forward. You might as well be a moron because without relationships, you're useless, which is fine if that's what your choice – again, you can't judge it, but relationships are the backbone to absolutely everything you're doing in life. And without healthy relationships, you will not move forward. I mean, think about your own life. You, you I mean, just the, the, the nugget you dribbled out to me, you know, from West Point, you're an actor, you're on the West Coast. It sounds like you're successful. You're interviewing all these people. You've been in all these shows. I guarantee you these things did not happen be, without good relationships with people, did it not? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, a lot of, yeah, a lot of my work is repeat offenders, I call them. You know, they, because you, you have trust and relationship. You brought talent and skill. But without the relationship, it'll go nowhere. Yeah, it's very true. But also, I mean, I find myself transitioning a little bit more into, you know, writing, directing, and producing. And I guess my thing is, how do you know, how do you know when I mean, there's a difference between breaking up in a relationship when you end a relationship? I, I imagine you can apply the same principles and you just realize, well, we don't really have congruent goals anymore, or sure. or mine is not like a subset of yours, or vice versa. Right. I, I guess the, the question is, how do you know? When you're being, do you know when you're being manipulated? And, and can you describe that feeling? Yes, yes. Uh, I get asked this a lot too. Matter of fact, the I'm in, we're in the middle of our proposal for our next book uh, right now, and the, the next one is about assessing others. And part of this was I, I get asked quite frequently. So, Robin, what happens when someone tries to manipulate you? And the first time I was asked that question, it was very puzzling to me. And here's why it was puzzling: because my my first answer was. I've never tried. No one ever tries to manipulate me. And but then I say, all right, so people must, I guess. But here's what happens. What are my three anchors? Healthy relationships, open eyes, communication, available resources for prosperity of others. So no expectation of reciprocity. So here's what happens. If I'm engaging with you for whatever purpose, I don't care what it is. If, if I if I are if I start asking clarifying questions because I have a question about something because there's a lack of transparency in something. 
and you're not giving me transparency, you're not trying to have a healthy relationship, and I won't do it. And mm-hmm. so I, I, I don't like say get out of my life. I just disengage until you're ready to do healthy. And healthy is open, honest communication and transparency. And so manipulators are not being transparent, and right. they're not having healthy relationships, you know. And so if I start another, even and, and so because we all see this in human beings. If someone's words become incongruent with their their emotions or even more so with their actions, I'll ask clarifying questions. And if I don't get clarifying answers, then it's unhealthy. What's and, an example of a clarifying question? What did you mean by that? Or Well, yeah. I mean, what do you mean by that? You know, when I when I heard you say X, Y and Z or 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 even even worse, you know, I heard you say this behind the door. You know, I, I heard from a third party source that you're saying X, Y and Z, but you're telling me this. Help me understand what's going on there. If they start hemming and hawing and coming up with you know all these explanations, in other words, if it gets really complicated, that's not healthy. Right. Life is really very, very simple. When you live with truth and transparency, it's very, very simple. If you're if someone becomes embarrassed about sharing something with me, or they're ashamed to tell me, or all these things, it's saying that we're dealing with unhealthy. And I'll tell you what, that's fine too. Human beings are massively for, forgiving. I have no problem with someone that has weaknesses, that someone makes mistakes. And the thing I'm always looking for is how mindful are you? How self-aware are you? I get asked a lot, so Robin, how do I get on the behavioral analysis program? How do I do this with the FBI? My first answer is, well, fail at everything else and you'll wind up here. That's what happened to me. But it's, it's really this. I said, when you're interviewing for something or someone, um, the things I'm looking for when I ask you about tell me about your strengths and tell me about your weaknesses, here's what I love to hear. I don't because skills, I can teach a skill. I can teach someone maybe in one day, one, you know, or it might take you a month. I got time. I can teach you a skill as long as you have a certain intellect level. Most people do. Most po- people fall within a normal parameter of human behavior. Um, but what I'm looking for is this. I'm looking for one, you're going to tell me your strengths, but I want to hear your strengths in terms of what my priorities are or what the mission is. So it's okay to self-aggrandize as long as you're talking in terms of how you're a resource for success. So that's the first thing. Uh, But secondly, but most importantly, I want to hear about your weaknesses. And here's how I want to hear them. I want to hear that you understand what they are. You might not have all of them because we're all working on it. But I want to hear your plan. I want to hear what you're doing to to correct it. And here's the other great thing. You don't even have to be great at correcting it. But if you have actually a plan in place and you're open about, hey, I'm working on this, me, I have massive impatience, you know, but I have, I try to do all these things all day long when dealing with situations I'm going to be impatient in. Here's my plan. Here's when I'm going to be impatient. Here's my plan. I, I suck at relationships. I wrote a, I wrote a manual on how not to be sucking on relationships. <laughs> so have a self-awareness, you know, yeah. that tells me, all right, because what are you not doing with me? You're, you're demonstrating to me that you're not insecure enough that you're trying to hide something from me, right. which means that if you're not trying to hide these insecurities, you're probably going to be honest with me in, in everything you do during the day. And I'll take that over anything. Yeah. So what are your challenges? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> we're, get, we're getting pretty, we're getting, we're getting near the end. <laughs> Time for that question. So what are your challenges being Robin Dreek these days? Actually, um, well, I, I did want to ask you something. I did want to, I wanted to know sure. like what your... Yeah, you really got me thinking with in this book. Again, I'm talking to Robin Dreek, author of The Code of Trust, an American counterintelligence expert's five rules to lead and succeed. And one of the things that really struck me with this book was having a goal, having that, having that almost, yeah. you said, almost that mythological goal that's hanging out there. Um, I just wondered if you could maybe share, it doesn't have to be specifics, I'm sure you've got it broken down, but what, what is your 
goal at this point or where, where are you going? I have found when I, the more flexible I became and I less focused on, on, on these tangible, very specific goals, I, life got a lot easier. And so here's what right. I mean. And, and we hit it on it briefly earlier. I call them means goals and ends goals. Mm-hmm. The means goals are, you know, so, so say when I first came in the FBI, the means goal was I want to recruit a, a Russian intelligence officer. I want to have a successful case. I want to get the director's award. I want to get promoted. All these things are very means goals. Those types of things you have very, very little influence on. A lot of other people and the whole universe does. And you, when you become very specific on exactly how you're trying to get to the ends goals, you're probably going to get very frustrated, right? <laughs> Anger, resentment, discontentment, and th- and when you have those kind of negative emotions up in here, I call it brain noise. You don't actually see the opportunities that are presenting themselves to you to get to the end. So and so, here's what I do. Right now, in my in my day job, you know, for another couple months, my whole goal is protect national security and protect my community. Means goals along the way are I need to talk and interview someone. I need to try to recruit this person. I needed some information from X, Y, and Z. But since I'm not hung up on how I'm going to go about protecting national security, I'm very open to if you say no and you don't want to have a conversation with me, okay, I don't do crazy. Because right. you know what? If I have good branding because I honored a healthy relationship, I was open honest in my communication and transparency, and I made myself a resource for you, you're going to say good things about me. And so if not you, it'll be someone else. And so my, my main goal is to, in my life, is to continue to honor and have healthy relationships with everyone I touch and to be a resource for other people's prosperity. And when I, when I stepped down out of management during sequestration and uh, said, all right, uh, I'm going to stop making it about my career. I'm going to make it about everyone else's career and be a resource for everyone to be successful around me. Oh, my God. That's when life started really happening. When I started realizing that... Uh, it wasn't about self-promotion, but it was really about promoting others. And that's the key in successful and uh, having a successful, prosperous life. And that's when I finally, that was that was the last one I got recently. Because, again, it's a journey, not a destination. I was like, wow. That was probably the most powerful thing I realized was that, wow, all I had to do this entire life was if I just learned how to be a resource for other people, it would have been a lot, hell of a lot easier. And I would have achieved probably X, Y, and Z. Because what were they now going to do? for you, they're probably going to reciprocate for you as well. But instead of being so self-centered and trying to make myself look good, I now focus on making other people look good. You can find the book Code of Trust by Robin Dreek at Amazon or wherever you get your books. On Twitter, he's at at rdreek, D-R-E-E-K-E, and his website, which is peopleformula.com. All this is going to be available in the side notes. Just check the website. Uh, Thank you, Robin, for being on the show. End of transmission now. Now.